Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin reading with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And when we come to these passages of scripture, this time of year, Familiarity can be our enemy, can cause us to gloss over the truth that is found in your holy, inerrant word. So Lord, this morning I pray that you would make your word live to us. Open our eyes that we may see and our ears that we may hear. And give us hearts that are tender and open to receive your truth. And perhaps for some even to receive the Christ of whom we speak. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts this morning. And that your work through your word would be accomplished. In Jesus name. Amen. Similarly to how Luke begins his gospel, though perhaps not as eloquently, uh, Matthew insists when he begins this record that it is just that. It is a record. These events are historical facts. He begins simply with this phrase, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. This is how it happened. Just like Luke spoke of eyewitnesses that led to his writing of what he says, an orderly account that, as he said to Theophilus, you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So when we come to passages like this, especially at this time of year, and we hear the Christmas story, as we call it, over and over and over again, we must be careful to remember 
that these things are true. That this happened. Especially so in a world where the story or the narrative about the birth of Christ is blended with other stories. It's almost humorous to be listening to Christmas radio, which of course we all do this time of year, right? Everybody's listening to 99.5 right now, right? No? Okay, it's just me then. When you're listening to Christmas radio, you'll hear someone saying, Away in a manger... And sing this glorious hymn about the most, uh, most significant event in human history. And when that song comes to an end, we're led right into Frosty the Snowman was a jolly, happy soul. <laughs> so when we think about Christmas, we have to be sure to remember that this is not just another story. This isn't Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But these are facts, historical records that are written for us in God's holy word. Amen? Luke 8, or Matthew 1 verse 18, he says this is how it happened. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Essentially what Matthew has done is he took everything that Luke said in our entire time together last Sunday and summarized it in simply one statement. How boring, right? Luke gave us a whole lot more detail. Matthew comes along and just says this is what happened. Before they came together, she was found with the child with child of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born of a virgin. And I know we discussed it last week, but it's worth reiterating. Matthew cites this fact of the virgin birth as the ultimate fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14. He said in verse 22 here, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the objection that you'll hear if you watch the History Channel or listen to many of the other uh, academic minds who deny the virgin birth, they'll say, well, that word that Isaiah used for virgin in the Old Testament could be used in more than one way. It could also mean a young woman. Isaiah didn't mean to say that a virgin who had never been with a man would conceive by some supernatural means and give birth to a son. So what's our Christian answer to that? Well, yeah, of course that's the word Isaiah used. He did use a word that could be used either way. Whether it's a young woman or a virgin. But that's not uncommon in Old Testament prophecy. We have what we call a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, right? Something that's going to happen in Isaiah's day that he's prophesying. A young woman did conceive and bear a son. And his prophecy was fulfilled in the days of Isaiah and Ahaz and the rest. Isaiah may not have understood just yet the full significance of his words. But if you take the whole of Scripture and what Matthew says and what Luke says, you cannot deny that the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus was born of a virgin. If you take Isaiah on its own, sure, we can make the argument that maybe Isaiah didn't know he was talking about a virgin. Maybe he was talking about a young woman. 
But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he used that word, knowing God knowing what would come. Mary protested last week, we saw in Luke 1, the angel says, this is what's going to happen. And she says, how can these things be? I know not a man. Obviously, she knew that what the angel was saying was impossible by human standards. And even Joseph's own restraint, as the angel had commanded in verse 25, he says that he did not know her. He kept her a virgin until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Now whether you believe in the virgin birth or not is a totally different matter. But the Bible's claim is perfectly clear. Mary was a virgin. She conceived of the Holy Spirit by the power of God. And Jesus, her son, was born. You can choose whether you want to believe it or not, but you can't say the Bible doesn't teach it. It's clear. And really, if you believe everything else that the Bible says about Jesus, it's really not a stretch to say that he could have been born of a virgin. If you really believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that He has existed for all of eternity in perfect fellowship with the Father, And the Spirit. And that He is the agent of creation. That He is the one through whom God made the worlds. That He's the one who formed the human body. That He's the one who created Mary's womb. It's really not a leap, is it? To say that He could have created for Himself a body. And been born of a virgin. He took to himself a human nature. And then there's Joseph. What a guy. I talked to Dan Merritt this week. He preached this passage last Sunday at another church. And he was telling me the title of his sermon was The Forgotten Man of Christmas. And I said, who? Jesus? (laughs) He said, well, that too. But (laughs) Joseph gets overlooked a lot. But verse 19 says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. We, we learn a bit about Joseph just from that verse. We should explain, though, that he's described as her husband. Well, which is it? Is he her husband or are they engaged? Well, betrothal was as binding as marriage. They, didn't just, they just didn't live together. They didn't consummate the marriage until the wedding. It was a legally binding agreement. You had to take out divorce papers if you wanted to break off the engagement. Some of you are really glad that that's not how it is now. But a legal divorce was necessary to break off this engagement, to, to break off the betrothal, and to be unfaithful. During your engagement, to be unfaithful during a betrothal was just as serious as committing adultery after your marriage is consummated. And it was punishable with the same severity. Mary could have been taken out into the streets and stoned had she been accused of unfaithfulness. He's described as her husband, but he also says he's a just man. 
He was just, upright, righteous. He faithfully observed God's law. He was a good Jew. He lived in accordance to God's word. As far as he knew, Mary had been unfaithful. I mean, you really think about how hard it must have been for Mary to try to explain this. She went to be with Elizabeth for three months. She comes back. She sees Joseph. By that point, it's becoming obvious that she's pregnant. He knows it's not his. What's he to think? Regardless of his love for Mary, whatever feelings he had towards Mary, he couldn't go through with a marriage with someone who had apparently disregarded God's law and been unfaithful. How could he? After what she's done. Well, this is a unique situation, so obviously something like this couldn't happen today. But maybe some singles could learn from this? To hold God's word in such high esteem that that's your standard for who you choose to be with for the rest of your life? Now, you haven't been engaged in this legally binding agreement where you have to get a divorce just to break up with your boyfriend, right? But God's Word and how well that other person lives by it should be the standard you use when you choose who you're going to live with for the rest of your life. Now, Joseph obviously was wrong, thankfully, about Mary. But from his perspective, she's lived an immoral life. She's been unfaithful to him. But he's not just a just man, or upright, or righteous, but he's kind. Look at the second half of verse 19. He says, not wanting to make her a public example, he was minded to put her away secretly. He had already decided this is what he was going to do. You know what? Mary has been unfaithful. She's been immoral. I can't believe she would lie about it and make up this ridiculous story about God visiting her. But I love her. I care about her. I don't want her to be stoned. I don't want her to be publicly shamed. You know what? Let's just, let's just go do the papers quietly. Even though he thought that she had done something wrong, he didn't want to put her to shame. And that speaks of his character as well. Some married people could learn, learn from that. Not to sh shame or criticize or poke fun inappropriately at your spouse publicly. You know, none of you have gone out to stone your spouse, but maybe you've criticized them enough they probably wish you would have. We can learn from the kindness of Joseph. Verse 20 says, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This is how it had to happen, right? I mean, there's no other way that, that Joseph could have been convinced. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now just imagine Joseph, he's, he's had this tough conversation with Mary, he's decided what he's going to do, he goes home, he's thinking about these things, you know, we men, we process things internally, and we're really good at one thing when we're stressed out, right? Sleep. It's amazing, uh, and some of you husbands can uh, relate to this, I'm sure, but you and your wife can have a disagreement or a, a tense evening, or something stressful happening, you get in the bed, and, and just the difference between men and women, she's alert, awake, she wants to talk about it, and what are you doing? 
snoring until you start getting that elbow. We need to talk about this. In the morning, I'm sleeping. This is just, it's just how God made us, right? Maybe it's part of the fall. I don't know. But it had to happen this way. I mean, there's no way that Mary, in herself, with her own words, was going to be able to convince Joseph that, I promise, it was an angel. I haven't been unfaithful. I haven't been with another man. It was an angel from God. He said that this was going to happen. Something about the Holy Spirit and the Son of God. And here it is. It took an angel. Whether it was the same angel or not, I don't know. We're not told. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, you, take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The testimony of the angel matches the testimony of Mary, who says that she heard it from an angel. It is good of God to give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. Joseph could have made a decision here that would have been right and just in his own eyes and by the standard of the law. And it would have been disastrous for Mary. And even for Christ as a baby needing an earthly father to provide for him and care for him. Joseph could have made a disastrous decision. But God comes along in just the right time and in just the right way to make sure that he knows what he needs to know so he can do what he needs to do. God is no different with us. Things may be confusing, perplexing, maybe spinning out of control. I can't imagine what Joseph must have been going through in his own mind at this time. But God gave him some rest and gave him the word that it was exactly what he needed to take Mary and make her his wife. And then as the angel reveals Christ to Joseph... We learn important things about Jesus. It is important to look to Joseph for some example, but the most important person in the story is not Joseph. It's Jesus. A couple of things we learn about Jesus. One, He is our salvation. Verse 21 says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, in this day, much like our own, you know, with our children, we decided on the names for our sons together. We talked about them. We made lists. We looked at other people's lists. We crossed off the ones we didn't like. We worked by a process of elimination. And, you know, eventually you get around and you say, you know what, I think that name will work. Now, in Joseph's day... It was the duty, the responsibility, the privilege of the father to give a name to his son. And men just aren't creative. And that's why a lot of people take their dad's names, right? <laughs> I don't know. Joseph Jr. But this responsibility, this privilege that Joseph had for his own children, God in a sense takes that away. Joseph doesn't have the right to name this child. Why? Because he is not this child's father. 
Joseph will care for the child. He will provide for the child as a father. But God is his father. And God tells him what his name shall be. His name will be Jesus. The Old Testament word is Yeshua. Joshua. The Greek translation of that, Jesus. Jesus. The Lord saves. What a name. The Lord saves. Why did he call him Jesus? The Lord saves, we're told. For he will save his people. He will save his people. This is the expectation of Israel. We've talked about it before, but it's worth talking about again. Joshua, he, he led the people of Israel into the promised land. Yeshua was their leader. He was their helper. He was their deliverer. He brought them salvation by conquering the Canaanites and leading them into the land that God had promised to them. Just like Joshua led them into that land, so the Messiah would drive out their enemies and restore them to their inheritance. That was what they were looking for. This new Joshua to make things right, to restore to us what we have lost. To be our Savior. And that's not far off from the expectation that the world has of God today, right? We expect Him to be our Savior from the things we think we need saving from. I think it was Dane Ortland that I heard say the last week or two that we think of Jesus as just a nicer version of us. Our picture of Jesus, He's just like we are except higher up on the scale. He's nicer, he doesn't sin, but he thinks like we do. We hear about Jesus at Christmas and we think of him coming to deliver us from oppression, poverty, greed, racism. Jesus, deliver us, save us from these terrible politicians. Fix our world. We expect Jesus to make the world and save us to make it into something that we think it should be. That's what the world looks for in Jesus. Really, listen to, again, Christmas radio. (laughs) That's what the expectation is. We think of ourselves as good people who are just victims of a broken world and we need a Savior who can come in and fix our world. Can give us back our land, so to speak. But the deliverance, the salvation that Jesus brings is not some physical deliverance to make our lives better on earth. His name shall be called Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. He will save them from their sins. 
I have a friend who's a pastor, and he did some interviews for a radio station who wanted to do some uh, question and answer times with uh, a local pastor. And he said that he's heard a few of them played back on the radio station, uh, but one that they haven't played yet was when they asked him, why do bad things happen to good people? And he said, they haven't played my answer back, and I think I know why. And I said, well, why? What's your answer? He said, well, the short version is, there are no good people. I guess that one doesn't draw in listeners to the radio station. But it's true. We're just good people. We're victims. The world is bad. The world is broken. People have done us wrong. We need Jesus to come and fix it for us. No. Your greatest need, your greatest problem is you. Your own sin. My, I won't just throw that at you. Listen here. My biggest problem is my own problem with my sin. Charles Spurgeon, that preacher of the 1800s, said, This first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit His people, not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. We need a Savior, but it's not because we're good people in a broken world. We need a Savior because we're broken people who love our sin. All we have to do to know that we're not good is to look at the law of God. Have any of you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength at all times? Please, raise your hand. You haven't. I haven't. We're lawbreakers. Criminals in God's eyes. And that's only the first commandment. Lust, greed, pride, all the rest... Gives us no good standing before God. We need a Savior because we are sinners. Christ was born, yes, but He was born to live the sinless life that we couldn't live for us. He was born, yes, but He was born to take the death and the punishment of our guilt and our shame that we could never die on our own. It would take us an eternity in hell to pay our debt back to God. But Jesus, in just three hours on a cross, bore the full weight of our punishment so that we could be forgiven. His name will be called Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. He has saved us from our sin in justifying us. If we have repented, put our trust in Jesus alone, giving no merit to our own good deeds, 
But trusting only in Jesus, He will justify you. He will make you righteous before God. You can have a perfect standing. When God looks at you, He doesn't see you anymore. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your badness or your deformities. But He sees you as He sees His only begotten righteous Son. And you can do nothing to change that. That's the standing He gives us as our Savior. He saves us from our sin in justifying us. He is still saving me from my sin in sanctifying me. And if you're a Christian, He is sanctifying you. He is making you holy progressively, continuously throughout your whole life. It seems so slow. It seems like it will never be finished. But God is still working on you if you are His child. He is still saving you from your sin. And the day will come when He will ultimately save us from our sin when He glorifies us. When we see Jesus face to face and we are made into His image perfectly, we will be like Him. We will be glorified and we will never sin again. He will save His people from their sins. He is our Savior, but He's also God with us. We get verse 22 and 23 again. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with the child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And we can think about that in different ways. One, he is called God with us because of the incarnation. That God became flesh. Remember John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as that of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. He is God with us because God Almighty stepped down and took to Himself a human nature and walked among us. He is God with us in that sense. But also He's called God with us because He restored our fellowship with God. Jesus reestablished what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Before there was sin, Adam and Eve walked with God. Every day, God came and walked with His creation. What fellowship! I can't imagine how that must have been. But then when sin entered the world, that was lost. They were thrown out of the garden. Fellowship was broken. But through Jesus and through Him being our Savior, now God is with us once again. He indwells His people. He has reestablished that connection. We have fellowship with God. God is with us. We also can think of it in terms of Him never leaving His people. He indwells us with His own Spirit. And He has promised... That He will never leave us, and He will never forsake us. That is good news for the Christian, not just at Christmas, but throughout the year, that God is with us. 
through Jesus, because of what Jesus did for us, we can confidently say, God is with us. Whatever the circumstances, whatever's going on in your life, whenever you feel abandoned and alone, you can step back and say this, Jesus is called Emmanuel. God with us. He is your Emmanuel. Let's take one more lesson from Joseph. Verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's response to this dream was to simply obey. He woke up and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. It sounds so simple. He makes it sound so easy. He just got up and did it. Like Mary, we saw last week, she said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me exactly as you've said. Joseph submitted himself to the service of the Lord, regardless of what everyone would think when they realized that Mary was pregnant before their wedding. I mean, people can count to nine, right? Regardless of whatever his plans had been, for a family, he did exactly as he was commanded by God. He took Mary as his wife. He kept her a virgin till, till Jesus was born. And he gave him the name that God had chosen. And we saw this with Mary. It is so true even for us. Obedience to God isn't easy. If anyone tells you, if you'll just obey God and stay in His will, you'll have the easiest and best life that you could ever dream of. I'll say you'll have the best life you can ever dream of. But there's no guarantees for easy. Many of you can bear witness to that. But it's worth it. How amazing to think that God has chosen to accomplish His eternal purposes through the obedience of sinful servants like us. Trust and obey, right? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. God accomplishes His purposes through His people. He doesn't need us. He could do it on His own. But He chose to use people like us. And we should be honored and thankful and moved to obedience. Not because it will make life great, but because it will be worth it when we see the eternal impact of our obedience. I mean, you think about Joseph. What, what God did through that. Through bringing Jesus into the world. What will He do through us? If we simply obey Him. He's worth obeying. Would you stand as we pray?
God, thank you again for your word. For the joy it brings us to know that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. That he is, even now, God with us. And that you have chosen to use broken vessels for your service. Should there be one here who has not yet been born again, I pray that they will hear the gospel and believe it and entrust themselves to you, Lord. And may we who know you be moved to obedience and worship as we consider the birth of Christ this season. In Jesus' name. Amen.